Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're going to talk about the kind of incorporating uh, sexual excitement, sexual joy back in your life if you're recovering from sexual addiction. I see a kind of similar pattern in my clients that are kind of been diagnosed with sexual addiction, similar pattern with individuals who are struggling with code unquote what's known as food addiction or what I call it binge eating disorder, that people feel only if I don't enjoy these kind of foods that I enjoyed, only if I don't have sex the way I used to have sex and don't do things that was exciting for me, I'll be okay. And at times that might be necessary for early stages of recovery, but I don't want people to have, at least for my clients, to have a small lives and they'd be kind of fearful of what if I do things that are exciting and pleasurable because of the fear of relapse. Alexandra Kitahakis is a founder and clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles, senior fellow at the Meadows and faculty for the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals. She won a number of different awards and accolades throughout her career, and she's a certified sex addiction therapist, supervisor, and ASAC certified sex therapist, supervisor, specializing in treatment of sexual addiction and other sexual disorders. She has multiple publications, and during this interview, we talk about her newest book that I just mentioned to you guys about how to incorporate healthy sexuality back in your life after recovering from sexual addiction. Before uh, we get to the interview, I just want to remind you guys that I'm doing this survey about how can I improve this podcast for you. So if you have a moment, please go to our show notes and take this brief five-question survey so I would know what are some of the topics that you might be interested to learn more about so I can provide you with better content. Anyhow, without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Alexandra Kadahakis. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Alexandra Kadahakis on our show today. Welcome to our show, Alex. Uh, thank you. Happy to be here. I am very excited for this conversation. I don't know if you remember or not. I, I was sharing with our listeners that I, the first exposure I had around training about sexual addiction was at your facility when it was back in Olympic. And it was like first right. year of yeah graduate school. And I was like, oh, this makes sense. And it wasn't until later on that I got more training on sex therapy and I realized and I learned about this uh, kind of conflict and misconceptions when it comes around sexual addiction recovery. So and I, I see you are the main voice of like helping people to understand sexual addiction recovery better. So what are some of the common misconceptions that you hear that people have when it comes to intimacy after recovery? Well, first of all, I don't think that intimacy, I, I assume we're saying sexuality, because I don't use the words intimacy and sexuality interchangeably. Um, I think intimacy has to do with the emotional connection between two people, honesty, vulnerability, integrity, and sex has to do with 
uh, that plus, you know, engaging the body. So I don't think that people, you know, um, finish their sex addiction and then get into a healthy sexuality. I don't think human beings are that linear. I think people are investigating their sexuality while they are also interested in eliminating the sexual behaviors they were engaging in that were creating problems or messes in their lives. That's interesting. I didn't think about, usually I use the term kind of interchangeably and it's, it makes sense when you make the distinction. Yeah, because I think people have a difficult time talking about sex. So couples will come to therapy and say, well, we haven't been intimate in a long time. And I think, well, what does that mean? You haven't been talking to each other? <laughs> um, what you're saying is you haven't had sex, you haven't had intercourse, you haven't been touching each other's bodies. That's a very different conversation. Absolutely. And I think when I think sex is unique, like similar to food, that it's not, you know, when we're in recovery, it, it doesn't make sense for us long term to not have not being and like sexual. I want to use the intimate term again, <laughs> not being sexual. But and it's just like that's one of the fear that people have. But I, I was just reading your book and I attended the workshop you had. And I think it was interesting that the way that you encourage people to kind of like explore their sexuality after recovery, it seems like it's kind of adding to their sex life versus kind of subtracting and kind of changing it in this way that's just very limiting. Well, of course, I think that's one of the mythologies or misnomers or uh, one of the attacks that are made on the sex addiction model is that it's sex negative and that it's, you know, heavily wrapped in religiosity and shaming and, um, you know, heteronormative and the list goes on and on, uh, which is a very old construct. Um, the book you're referring to is my new workbook, Sexual Reflections, which is a workbook for designing and celebrating a sexual health plan for individuals who identify as being in recovery from sexual addiction or sexual compulsivity or problematic sexual behaviors or out of control sexual behavior, whatever you want to call it, so that people are saying, you know, I've gotten through a point now where I've been honest with my partner if they're partnered or if they're single, I've stopped the behaviors that are destructive and that have me out of my integrity. Because what we hear from people who identify as, quote, sex addicts is that um, they're doing all sorts of things against their value system, which has very little to do with morality. It's just what we value in life, what we how we want to see ourselves as good people. And they know that they're hurting people or doing things that are destructive or unkind. And so they want to stop doing those things, but they want to enjoy sex and sexuality in a way that's pleasurable and interesting. And so my workbook, Sexual Reflections, takes people through a process where they're really examining what they were doing, um, what felt bad to them, what they would like to be doing, and also maybe what they were doing that they would like to do without feeling bad about. So that's really shame reduction. Right. And I'm kind of curious about, I know in the book you're talking about the difference between the healthy sex and addictive sex. So can you tell us a little bit about those differences? Sure. I mean, they're, they're, uh, if you really... Um, and this is just a clinical observation, meaning this is what I've watched and seen in people over the last 20 years. And it's also 
uh, been written about by Dr. Patrick Carnes. I've adapted some of his work, but, you know, addictive sex for starters originates from a feeling of being shameful about sexuality. So shame, sex is dirty, it's bad, it's shameful. And, and anytime I do it, um, I feel bad about myself. And a healthy sex is meant to really deepen a sense of self that just as we know what kind of foods we like or what kind of exercise we like or what kind of vacations we like, we should know what kind of sex we like. It should just be an integrated part of who we are without shame or without embarrassment about it. So that's one criteria. There are many others. I mean, addictive sex is really opportunistic. It takes advantage of other people. And healthy sex is really about being consensual and mutually respectful and honoring. So in other words, you know the person in a way that feels like it's additive to your life, not like you're just using or taking advantage of somebody. And as I was saying before, addictive sex really compromises a person's integrity or value system, um, whereas healthy sex reinforces your value system and makes you feel good about yourself. Also, uh, what we know about people that identify as sex addicts is that they confuse intensity for intimacy. So it's always about, oh my God, it was so intense or it was so passionate or this or that. But there's not much vulnerability in that. And in healthy sex, we really encourage people to get naked emotionally, to become vulnerable and to recognize that vulnerability is really the portal to being intimate, meaning close, super emotionally close with, you know, an open heart to another person. And that that open heartedness leads to eroticism. Sex addicts have what a colleague of mine calls a crotch attachment, um, as opposed to a heart attachment. Oh, what is that? Well, I mean, that you're just attaching from the crotch. It's all about (laughs) genitals and getting off. And Mm -hmm. um, it's not really about any kind of connection with the other person. And and again, I don't have a morality about that. It's not right or wrong. It's just that over time, it gets tiresome and it can start to feel empty for a lot of people. Right. And when you were talking about feeling shame around sexuality, I think, unfortunately, it's just so common that because most, at least most people I see in my practice, they're coming from a more conservative background and they feel kind of sh- like for them, sexuality and shame is kind of like connected. Right. So is this a spectrum that people organize for as like their uh, addictive sexual behavior or is just a line and when they're crossed, they kind of consider as a sex addict? I, no, I think it's probably the former. And that brings me to another point that, Um, Sex addiction is often a reenactment of trauma, Mm -hmm. and it starts to really cement arousal patterns in the brain. Um, So if somebody was sexually tampered with in any way as a child, um, they felt shameful about that, dirty, they knew it was wrong, they didn't tell anybody, Um, that gets fused with their sexuality. So sex that's arousing is usually secretive or furtive or shaming. And so in healthy, healthier sexual configuration, we want people to be able to explore their sexuality and kind of rewire their sexual arousal template so it's not relegated to the same thing over and over and over again that keeps reinforcing shame and making them feel more shameful over time. So it becomes uh, sort of like a tumbleweed. If somebody was 
sexually abused as a child, then they feel shameful and they keep doing that thing for decades. After a while, they don't even know where the sexual trauma was. They've now just kind of created this monstrously shameful sexuality. So we want to help people get out of that. And I think one thing that you talk about it in the book, and you kind of explain it in the class was about kind of like incorporating your values. Because one thing I is at times is challenging as adults, people's kind of erotic templates are kind of solidified. And it's just like, you know, it's hard to kind of drastically change it. And I was I right. like that when you incorporate the use of values and kind of finding what is what is it there that's exciting and congruent with your values and how we can incorporate that versus saying that just forget about that part, that that thing that was arousing completely. And from now on, you're going to have this kind of like sexual relationships. Right. And I think that is, again, one of the misnomers about, you know, sex addiction being sex negative, that if somebody, you know, likes a certain sexual act, in their compulsive behaviors, they may still like it after their recovery. And the difference is, is it secretive? Is it shaming? Does it feel abusive to yourself or another person? Or can you just own it and say, you know what, I just like that particular thing, um, that sex act. Let's say the sex act is oral sex for, you know, um, lack of uh, being too creative here or offending anybody. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, this is a pretty common sex act, but for some people, it may still feel um, a little bit racy or wrong or something like that. But if that's something that's really arousing to them and they were doing a lot of it when they were sexually compulsive, we don't want people in sexual recovery to stop doing that. Mm -hmm. Now it's about let's talk about your shame around it and your embarrassment and the narrative you have around it and what you were told about it. And let's look at this in real time. You're an adult person. You get to have an adult sexuality independently of what your parents told you or your culture told you or perhaps even your religion told you. What's true for you? And if you enjoy it, can you enjoy it without shame? And that's really the difference. We just don't want sex to be underground and swaddled in shame so that it keeps being secretive and becomes increasingly more problematic because you you have to lie or you have a secret life in order to do what you want to do. And I like that kind of like focusing on removing the shame and kind of helping people to do things that are not necessarily disruptive, but it's enjoyable because I think pleasure is everyone's is a human right thing. And it's just important for us to experience pleasure. And, it, and in your book, you were talking about sexual health plan and you were talking about it's helpful for people in recovery. I was just reading and working through it. And I think it can be helpful for most people. I agree. Yeah. yeah because you. yeah, because it was just most of us, we didn't have opportunity to kind of think about different components of sexuality. So I think it gives people hands-on tools to kind of explore those things. I think that's true for all of my books, that they're all generalizable to sexuality. Um, you don't have to be sexually addicted or compulsive. Mm-hmm. Um, it just happens that Um, You know, that was an area of interest I had, you know, early on in my career. Um, I was really interested in human sexuality and sexual health. But I started examining this problem of sexual addiction. And I thought, wow, this is just a problem of sex on a continuum. And how do we help people, you know, who have had so much shame and abuse around their sexuality? 
start to become sexually healthy. So you're right, the workbook Sexual Reflections is definitely generalizable to all people. Um, some of it might be irrelevant, but most of it will be highly relevant, I think, if people are interested in figuring out, well, who am I sexually and what do I like sexually? And kind of like being kind of mindful of different components of sexualities, which is like a physiological component is just one part of it. And there's just so, so many things that plays into it. Right. Right. And also, you can focus on kind of helping people with creating their sexual health plan. Why do you think is that important? Well, because I think we don't think about our sexuality the way we think about, you know, our hairstyle and our fashion and we work out and uh, we do all these things to improve ourselves or to make ourselves feel good. But we don't really think about well, what is what is my current erotic template because this changes from decade to decade. And certainly when people are teenagers, it's a time of massive exploration and pretty much, you know, anything goes and sex seems kind of weird and freaky and eventually can feel sort of fun and exciting. And then in our 20s, you know, our arousal is so much higher just naturally, physiologically. So it's easy to get turned on for the most part for many people. But then, you know, people move into their 30s and they get more responsibility. If they start a family, their sex life really drops off. Um, and then at 40, you're a different person altogether. <laughs> and then the body changes again radically in the late 40s and 50s um, and 60s and 70s. And so it goes. So I think it's important to sort of re-evaluate, you know, just like we re-evaluate goals for our careers or our lives, you know, what, what do I like sexually today? Do I even know? Wow, my body doesn't respond the way it used to. Um, what am I going to do about that? What do I want to do about that? How do I talk to my partner about that? These are just conversations. I think the idea for sexual reflections is that it has people really reflecting on themselves and then encouraging them to start to have conversations with the people that they're having sex with. Right. And I think specifically one of the exercises that was, that's one of my favorites and I can end the class. I thought it was great. It was on identifying and clarifying your sexual values. And I practice from acceptance and commitment therapy and value is such an important part of uh, that. And I think people sometimes ask me, is this wrong that I like that? And I don't think necessarily there's a wrong or right way of doing things. It's about whether this act is congruent with your values. And it was very interesting that you you have one for sexual values. So I'm curious, uh, why do you think is that important? And is our values something that changes throughout the years? I think they do change throughout the years, but generally, you know, depending on how people are raised, um, our parents are very powerful forces in our lives because, you know, as you know, children's brains are extremely malleable. Um, and we can create securely attached children or insecurely attached children, and that will then impact their psychological state over a lifetime and even their health now, we know. So for as much as um, many of us rebel in our teens and 20s and strike out to new lands um, and try all sorts of different things, eventually, I think, uh, because we're so habituated and our brains are so automatic, we end up reverting back to the values we originally grew up with. And so I think while they can change and they're malleable, 
they generally also kind of stay within the same bandwidth. But I think we have to think about, you know, I use the word sexual values, but it's really about, you know, what's sexually arousing to you. Mm-hmm. And is what's sexually arousing to you, does that align with what your personal values are? So, for example, I've had many men tell me over the years that they did all sorts of things outside of their value system when they were engaging in multiple affairs or hiring sex workers or having sex with, you know, people outside of their sexual orientation, because it was all about intensity. And they weren't very present. In fact, they might have been rather dissociated. And they were living these double secret lives and weren't in touch with their feelings at all. And in a lot of pain, And so it's not about saying that sex act was wrong. There's no wrong sex act or sexual behavior. It's about, wow, when I do that thing, I'm so far out of my integrity and so far out of my value system that I don't like myself. Right. And that's what causes distress. And I I like that, like you're kind of like shedding a light on that component. And I know you have another section that you talk about, like defining what is that like what's your description of it? And when I do that with couples, you just realize how each person's uh, definition is different. And I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it is different. And that's why it's fun for couples to do together to each person look at their values and then each person look at what their sexual values are, what turns them on, and then um, to compare them and to see, oh, wow, are we close to being on the same page here? Do we have different... Um, ideas and wants and needs? And then how do we have a constructive conversation to start to bridge that gap, to start to try things that might be out of my comfort zone because I want to grow as an adult sexually. Um, I don't want to just be limited sexually and I don't expect you to live with my limitations. Um, Both of us are going to try things and stretch together. So an example of that might be um, many, many years ago, I had a client who, it was a couple and she wanted him to be more romantic. And he came from kind of a, um, I would say, sort of a more blue collar family that you know, had a hard work ethic and they didn't have much luxury and quote romance in their life per se. And um, he said, you know, if you think I'm going to light candles and draw a bubble bath for you, you can forget it. I'm not that guy. And I said to him, well, if you're not going to do that, you're probably not going to get laid. (laughs) Right. Because she was saying that she needed more romance and she wasn't asking for a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he had to really take himself on and challenge himself to do something that made him feel awkward, that really bumped up against his definition of masculinity. Because what did that say about him? And I reminded him nobody would know about this, but the two of them. (laughs) Um, And that, you know, he was willing to give it a try and it made a big difference for her in terms of her attraction to him because she needed to feel desired, wanted. And this is very common for women when we're talking about heterosexual uh, couples here. And so, and he liked sex that was a little bit more gruff and we could just call it rough sex. It wasn't really BDSM. And she was willing to do that, but she had to feel safe and cared for and wanted first. So these are paradoxes that are inherent in all marriages and all dynamics. And um, I think they're there because they force us to grow sexually. So 
when we're past the ages really of 20s and mid 30s, sex is not just about a drive anymore. It's really about are we going to challenge ourselves and kind of grow up and and define a sexuality that's an adult sexuality, um, not just keep doing what we were doing in our 20s and our 40s and wondering why it's not working. Absolutely. And I think one other thing related to having kind of talking about these values when people are in kind of recovery from sexual compulsivity is that it helps people, gives them this framework for the couple to feel kind of, kind of explore and be playful. Because I would imagine if, if someone is trying to reintegrate kind of some of the acts that they used to do and the partner might get very worried and kind of get alert. What if we're going through the same path? And I think having this framework, this kind of conversation would provide some kind of comfort and help couples to be kind of playful and mindful within the within the framework that they're comfortable with. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because, you know, the partners, the people who have been betrayed, whether it's been a single incident affair or, you know, sexual addiction and compulsivity are always worried about whether they're going to be activating the other person or that person's going to be thinking about their affair partner or the sex workers they hired. And um, it's very painful for them. And they end up foreclosing on themselves and giving away their sexuality. I mean, many women report that they used to love sex and really enjoy the freedom of sexuality, but now it felt shut down and not playful. And that's why, you know, explicit conversations, not about what the person who did the, you know, betraying did with other people, that's really irrelevant. It's more about as a couple, what are we going to do together? And what do these sexual acts mean? Um, How does it make me feel? And what are you thinking about when you're doing this? Are you thinking about me? Are you thinking about somebody else? And one of the things that's important to highlight here is that when people are really qualify as sex addicts. And we do have diagnostic criteria for that. That is pretty tried and true. They are typically moderately to severely dissociated. And that dissociation comes from early childhood trauma. So when they're having sex, they're really checked out. They're in a different zone altogether and their partners can feel it. They can feel when the person is not present, they're not thinking about them. They're not making eye contact. And that's when Uh, trouble starts to happen in the sexual experience. So the more present both parties can be, um, the more honest they can be about what happens to them during sex, whether they go into shame or they get scared, the more intimate the sexual act becomes. And people might have to go through this sort of awkward period that doesn't feel that erotic or hot in order to get to those places because they will deepen their love and their connection along the way. And I think that certainly is a challenging task because I, I, I work with clients for years and years. They learn to dissociate during sex. And right. if they're anchoring the moment, it's really hard for them to experience arousal. Right. And um, so that's the challenge is to become associated, not dissociated. Um, And associated with your partner by making eye contact with them, talking to them, noticing what you're thinking about, um, what's happening between the two of you, the the sights and smells of that person, as opposed to being in fantasy about previous acting out partners. 
the other thought that I have was like, I love this work. And I think it's just such a rich work of helping people uh, figure out their sexual health plan after recovery. But I'm kind of curious. And again, I know it depends on people's history, but how soon people can transition to this kind of work uh, when they enter the recovery treatment. Well, you know, it's different for everybody because like you said, it's more like eating. It's not something that you just stop like alcohol and you just never pick it up again. I mean, in some ways that's easier. Um, Not that it's easy to get sober from drugs and alcohol, but you cannot have alcohol in your house. You can avoid it, but you can't avoid your sexuality and your partner. I mean, you can, but you'll be miserable in a different way. Right. So usually the trajectory is that um, the person has done a lot of work on themselves and really have arrested the behaviors they considered problematic, are looking at all the things that really activate them into wanting to act out, are becoming congruent with their own integrity and are motivated to do what's true for them. And if they're in a relationship, the partner has also gone through a process and perhaps they've gone through a process of what we call a formal disclosure where the person who has done the betraying Um, has written out a sexual timeline history and talked about the depth and breadth of their behaviors and their, their addiction, really, and how it's impacted the relationship. So the couple have to do a lot of repair work first Mm -hmm. before they can start to uh, wade into kind of the more delicious and playful parts of sexuality. In my book, Erotic Intelligence, uh, which came out in 2010, which is now on Audible, by the way, oh. you can do it. That book is sort of a, a precursor to the workbook, Sexual Reflections, because it kind of gives people the landscape of where you start with just simple, healthy sex. And what does that mean other than, you know, just being able to make contact with each other before you move into more intimate, erotic and spiritual realms? Um, so I would direct people to that book first if they're in early recovery. And I think uh, one thing that's very important is just for people to continue their path in the journey of recovery. Because sometimes what I notice is people coming in when there's a crisis and then after when the crisis passes and they kind of put on sober, they could have discontinued the treatment, which is very unfortunate because I feel they miss out at the best part of kind of like rediscovering their sexuality and just increases their chances of relapse. You know, human beings are funny that way, right? We don't move necessarily towards what's good for us. We move away from what's painful. So, you know, if you're having heart problems, your doctor says you need to start eating well and exercising. But if you're eating well and exercising, you won't see your doctor for heart problems usually. (laughs) So, you know, Dr. Carnes talks about this too. He says people get better enough. And they spend the bulk of their resources, their time, energy, and money on the front end by going to, you know, treatment programs because they're in crisis and they really need to stop doing what they're doing and their families are in upheaval. And they don't understand that really it's the long haul that makes the difference uh, because you're moving out of the crisis stage and really out of just doing straight cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what the addiction model is, into deeper psychodynamic work and looking at your sexuality and making sexual health plans and restoring your relationship. So it, it is unfortunate that people see this as a sprint instead of a marathon. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I want to make sure before we're closing, we're touching on another thing that I felt it was really helpful that I witnessed you when you were doing it and that you were teaching about it in the class and you talk about it in the book about tracking. And I know some of our listeners, they are therapists. And I know mm-hmm. you talk about using a bodily-based transference and countertransferences with your clients. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. I think, you know, because we recognize now that the mind and the body and the brain are one organism, that we cannot separate the two. And in fact, Dan Siegel reminds us constantly that the brain is a social organ and that our mind exists in relationship to other people. So people can drive us out of our minds or help us, you know, be, uh, reach our full potential and certainly torture is an example of being driven mad because the nervous system cannot take the assault on it. And so, you know, the higher cortex dissociates, disconnects really from the limbic system in the body and you get this deadness in the body. And of course, many clients, you know, grow up in abusive families um, are going to revert to that strategy non-consciously. It's just the way the body takes care of itself. And our job is to help people rekindle those circuits so they become more integrated and more whole. And so as a therapist, and that's the unique thing about sexual reflections, is that it's a workbook that's not just a cognitive workbook, but it has um, very interesting artistic images in it for people to color. And these were um, illustrated by Terry, Dr. Terry Marks Tarlow, who's an expert in nonlinear dynamic theory and fractals. And you'll see that these Uh, images have fractal natures to them because we're trying to evoke material from the right brain and the body. Likewise, during the process of going through the answers in the workbook, there's a therapist tracking guide in the back that asks the therapist to start to track, you know, what the client is noticing in his or her body as they're talking about these sexual acts. Is it evoking shame? Are they getting hyper aroused? Are they starting to dissociate? And what is the therapist feeling in his or her own body? What are they noticing as these conversations are ensuing? Because that that's the intersubjective field. And something is emerging between the two parties that will be very useful in locating, quote, the truth. So the truth is emergent from what's true in the body, not just an idea of what I think I'd like to do. Because most addicts' idea of what they want to do are the things they were doing in their addiction. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But if you ask somebody, oh, so you think um, having sex with a Martian is a good idea, what are you noticing in your body as you're saying that right now? Because you used to have sex with Martians all the time in your addiction. And that person will generally say, well... You know, I'm starting to notice that I'm getting this like high level of arousal, like maybe my heart is beating and my palms are sweating. And this is used to, what I used to feel like when I was acting out. Mm-hmm. And then the therapist might say, yeah, based on what I know about your history, and I was getting a little bit of a tightness in my chest when you said that, because I worry that's really a slippery slope for you. Maybe we should take sex with Martians <laughs> and put that on your watch and wait list, which is also in the workbook. And we'll come back to that. But right now, that feels like something that might derail your sexuality instead of helping you move towards a more integrated sexuality. And what do you think about that? So together, the therapist and client are making a decision based on what they're noticing, what they're feeling, what they're thinking, what they 
no based on history might be appropriate for this person. And I really like that the idea of naming what you're feeling as a therapist in your body and and modeling it and give so much great information. Again, I always been kind of hesitant to do that. But like recently Mm. after your class, it was very helpful kind of like naming it and seeing that it can help the client go deeper on the conversation and them kind of give them no uh, encouragement and kind of power to kind of tune in and what's going on with their bodies as well. Right. I mean, most people don't even know they have impulses in their bodies and that kind of affective disclosure is so much more powerful really than cognitive disclosure, which can be nice for joining like, Oh, you went to that college. I went to college on the East coast too. Okay. But really, you know, again, Dan Siegel talks about the client feeling felt by the therapist, which is a very high level of attunement. Alan Shore, of course, talks about this in depth as well. So this notion that, wow, I'm feeling something as you're talking, that's a very intimate experience. And we're not just talking about intimacy, we're modeling it. I'm with you. I'm feeling with you through this. Wow, this is what I'm feeling. What are you feeling? Isn't that interesting? Um, It's not right or wrong. It's just that I'm a human being here and I'm so closely engaged with you that our nervous systems, our brain stems, the autonomic nervous system are all in concert with each other. And there is a nonverbal communication taking place that's extremely valuable. Alex, I can talk about this for hours with you because you have so much great information and so many books and writing. And again, just it's wonderful to have you uh, on the show. And I want to make sure that people know where to go if they want to get your book, where they can find your writing. I know you have a number of different kind of educational materials. So what would be the best way of uh, getting access to those information? Well, I would direct people to our website, which is centerforhealthysex.com. And there you'll find all of our webinars and CEU courses. Uh, we do a monthly CEU course for psychologists, marriage, family therapists, and that sort of thing. So you get one credit and it's free every month. And we have all manner of Uh, people coming and talking about all different aspects of sex and sexuality. We also have a YouTube channel that has probably well over a hundred videos from sex experts around the country talking about every issue under the sun about sex and sexuality. So um, our website is a tremendous resource. If you want to take a look at my books, you can go to amazon.com and uh, type in my last name, K-A-T-E-H-A-K-I-S. And there you'll find all of my books on uh, sex and sexuality. Awesome. Uh, I make sure I leave a link in the show notes to all of those resources. And thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alexandra. At the end, I wanted to invite you guys to give me feedback on how I can improve this show about the topics you guys are interested to learn more about. I included a link in the show notes. It's a brief survey. It's like four questions. And if you take a moment and share with me that what are the topics you're interested in and how can I improve this podcast, I would truly appreciate it. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast 
is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.